Well, if you have your Bibles, um, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. We'll be in Malachi chapter 3 this morning. We're actually finishing our study in the book of Malachi. And some of you are like, this has got to be a world record, right? We made it through a whole book in five weeks. That's right, we did. Uh, have, have you enjoyed uh, the book of Malachi? You're like, enjoy is probably the wrong word, right? Like, enjoy, you know, a prophet. I, I don't know. But it's been good. And uh, most people I talk with, even after the 9 a.m. service, uh, kind of use the same language. Like, it's just been kind of a, you know, kind of a... Kicking the butt a little bit, you know. It's been it's it's been it's been kind of one of those intense books that we walk through, and 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 that's rightfully so. And I always set up each message in Malachi because of its intensity to remind us of chapter one, verse two. And so, if you have your Bible there, chapter uh, one, verse two is the foundation of the whole book. And God, the very first thing that rolls out of His mouth in a very intense prophet is this: "What I have loved you." And that's not like past tense, even though in English it's written like that. It's, it's this tense that means I have loved you because I called you Israel. I love you today, even in the things that I'm going to unpack, God says, that, that you're, being, you're living in disobedience. And I will love you. So it's this like past, present, future. I, I love you. I love you. So it's God's love toward them that is the foundation for him to say the really difficult things that he says in Malachi. And it's no different for us as his people. The book of Malachi is written to the nation of Israel, God's people, right? And so we as the church are God's people. And these strong words, these intense words are meant for our good, right? So, so the intensity to which we feel these words come from God through Malachi to us also should remind us of how even greater the intensity of his love is toward us. If God didn't love us, he'd just go, go do whatever you want, however you want to, right? Like, and then, you know, in the end, you'll see. You'll see if I actually love you. No, he goes, no, I love you. I love you demonstrate my love to you in Christ. And then even in Christ, I'm still going to confront you. I'm going to convict you in your sin. Why? Because I just want to be mean to you because I want to limit you. I want to, I want to take away from, no, because I love you. I want to show you what true life is. I want to show you what, what flourishing John 10, 10 life and life to the full actually means. And so God's love toward us really can be exemplified in his intensity uh, toward us in things like Malachi and the words here. So even in my communicating Malachi to you as a teacher, I want to communicate its intensity, not for just intensity's sake, but because I want you to see the intense love of God toward his people in, in bringing these different things up. And in Malachi as a whole, God is confronting a spiritual apathy, a people in Israel who have just become lethargic and frankly are mailing it into God. We see that in their sacrifices in Malachi chapter two, where they're bringing the lame, the worst of the worst, right? Like they have no value to them. They're bringing them to the temple and they're, they're being sacrificed before God. And God goes like, what are you doing? Who do you think I am to think that I, I, I would receive your worst? Who, who are you and who, what is your view of me to bring your worst, right? Like what's your view of me if that's what you offer to me, this, this creator God, this covenant keeping God with you, Israel. And then he, and then he highlights in chapter three, um, his covenants and, and marriage. And he's going, listen, you, you don't understand covenant if you are, are, are just flippantly divorcing your spouses here and there. And he talks about his covenant keeping. And then he talks about justice and true justice. You know, the people that Israel were calling for justice. God's, where's your justice? Where's your justice? And God goes, you really want me to bring justice? I don't think you do. And then last week, right? that real popular passage on money, right? Tithing. And God goes, listen, you have forgotten, you've neglected, you've sinned against me by not bringing your first fruits into the storehouse. 
And God goes, listen, put me to the test. Your complaints, your indictments, put me to the test. Be faithful and see if I will not throw open the windows of heaven and pour out blessing upon you when you honor and when you obey me. Right? That's not manipulation. That's God going, listen, this is who I am. Because if you remember last week, the lead line in chapter three was what? The foundation was what? God says, I do not change. Right there at the beginning of chapter three in Malachi. I do not change. And so chapter three at the end and all the way to chapter four um, is still with the same intensity. But if you'll listen as I read the text, I hope that you hear uh, a lot of joy and hopefulness in this passage. And so stand with me in the reading and the honoring of reading of God's word. Malachi chapter three, verse 13. If you don't have your copy of God's word, it'll be on the screen behind me. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. That's what Israel's saying. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. You know any book that ends with the word destruction is intense, right? Like that's, that's what ends Malachi. And then after Malachi, if you know your Bibles, it's 400 years of silence. Whoa, right? But did you hear in this passage, in this section, follows the same flow of the other ones we went through. Did you hear the hopefulness for a certain group of people? Did, did, did you hear what God was saying? Yes, he was talking about judgment. He was talking about that final day. But he also was talking specifically to a remnant or a group of people in this. And it's a theme that's over this this passage, not so subtly. It's for those who fear God. That was all over the pages, all over this section. Those who fear me, those who fear God, those those that that fear my name. Okay, so this morning, what I want to do is I want to walk through this section of scripture. And I think there are four looks that happen here. And particularly, these are four looks for the people of God, for those who fear God. And we're going to talk about what the fear of God is in, in, in just a second. But I, I want to look at these, these looks because constantly we are looking with our eyes, right? And I would, I would argue with our hearts as well, 
out into a world that is diminishing God. That, that, that doesn't fear God, right? And, and that's understood, right? They're not, they're not the remnant. They're not the people of God, right? But we constantly live and swim in waters of a, a place that is diminishing God and not fearing God. So if you look with me, the first section, the first look, if you will, is the nation of Israel in verses 13 through, through 15. Their eyes go where ours naturally go. And that is looking out. That is looking out to and in the world, right? Whether you're in a workplace, you're in school, um, your, your, your kid's soccer team, whatever it is, like we live in a world and a culture that is absent with or from the fear of God. What is their conclusion of looking out? Did you hear that? Let's look at it. If you, it says, you have said, it is vain to serve God. This is what Israel's saying. What is the profit of keeping his charge or obedience, walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? In other words, clear language, it seems pointless to us, nation of Israel, to serve God as we look out, as we survey the land. Why? Because it goes on. It seems as if the unrighteous are elevated. The unrighteous, those, those people who aren't God's people are the ones actually prospering. Those who are doing evil, God, they're putting you to the test and they're escaping your judgment. That's what it says. And so they look out and they go, why, God, why would we serve you? Why would we listen to your statutes? Why would we listen to your commands? Why would we, why would we yield to you? It is utterly pointless. You see, we could be judgy Christians right now like we are typically with the Pharisees, the religious leaders in the New Testament, where we're like, how can they be so religious, right? Like, you know, we could do that. Or we could be honest and say, this is a tension and a struggle and a war within all of us. It is. Have you ever questioned in your mind, God, as I look out, as I survey the land around me, the people around me, your math doesn't really add up to me. It seems as if the unrighteous prosper and the righteous really struggle. Maybe you don't even have to look at like the culture of the world. Right? Maybe you, you're just talking about your life right here, individually. And you're going, God, I'm really struggling. This has happened. I'm trying to live by faith. I'm trying to be obedient. I am being obedient. I'm surrendering. I'm submitting to you. But my life currently is full of struggle. And typically what happens is we always look at somebody who isn't following Christ and we go, but them on the other hand, (laughs) they're just prospering. They're not struggling, right? And the enemy begins to play this war in our head. And if we're honest, well, God, sometimes it seems vain to serve you, just like what Israel said. It seems pointless, And you see, the world around us reinforces that idea. It does. It puts pressure on us to neglect and forget God. It feeds this idea of pointlessness or vanity in serving God. And here is how, by and large, it reinforces that idea. The world and the culture around us make what is most central to us, what? Your feelings how you feel, right? That's what is the authority. 
How do you feel? How, how, does, this, how, does, this, how does this make you feel? How, how does this sit with you, right? That's what culture in the world says is, 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 is paramount. That's what sits on the throne is you and your feelings. But as Christians, as Christ followers, here's what Jesus does when he saves us. He kicks off those those, those terrible idols, right? Those lowercase g gods from the throne of our hearts and he replaces it with the very best thing, himself, right? And so there's this constant tension of us trying to replace him with other things on the throne of our heart. And we do that and we go, wait a minute, that didn't work out because the only thing that works out is when we truly surrender to Jesus, when we truly see him as best, regardless of the circumstances around us, regardless even individually of what's taking place. But man, sometimes we're like Israel right here. We're going, we're looking out. God, it really seems pointless. But then, verse 16, actually the word then is there. Look at it. He says, I want you to look somewhere else. It's, it's really easy to look out or feel despair when that's our lens. He says, then, here's what I want you to do. Then, second look, those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Now we're bringing in the fear of God. And what did this remnant, what did this group of people who feared the Lord, what did they do? It says it right there in your Bible. They spoke with one another. So the second look is this, right? We look in, and I put here, we look into the church. We look into the people of God. For Israel, it was those who feared Yahweh, right? It was those who had a proper reverence of who God is. It's like the, the prophet Malachi was going, listen, you need each other because if all you're doing is looking out, looking out, or you're looking at the despair in your life, which is true and real and the circumstances are true, it's not negating those things, you're going to go, it's pointless. It's vanity. It seems like this, is, this, has, no, this has no point to it. But what happens when you get together with the people of God, the other God fears, we're reminded of who God truly is right? What's the fear of God? The fear of God is this, it's, it's this idea of awe. It's this idea of understanding that his presence, his thoughts, his words, his activity are alive and active right now and in every moment and nothing escapes him. Nothing. You see, when people understand and believe that, that's what causes us to have a right view of who God is. I mean, right here it says that the people who got together were those who feared the Lord, esteemed his name, and served him. That's right there in Malachi. So this is the gathering. This is the people that we look into. We don't look into the perfect ones, right? It doesn't say, hey, pull all together the people who are perfect, right? Or the powerful ones. Or the ones who have it all together, the influential ones. It says, pull together those who fear, the God, fear God, esteem his name, and serve him. And Malachi goes, in looking in, here's what I want you to cultivate. I want you to cultivate an awareness and an understanding of God more deep than the people around you. Even within the nation of Israel, okay? He was calling this remnant of people to get together and talk. That's what it said. They spoke with one another. They got together. Because everybody else was dismissing God, dismissing him. God, it's vanity. It's useless. Have you ever been uh, dismissed from something? And probably all of us have yeah, been dismissed. Have you ever been dismissed um, from something that you own? Like something that is yours, rightfully yours, removed from. Um, so my son, my middle son, 
Mac, when he was three or four, uh, he was over at Sam's house, uh, his, his, Sam, his, his uncle. And, you know, if you have, you have kids, you know that, like, leaving a place is very difficult, right? So you start that, like, four hours ahead of time. Like, hey, we're leaving now, right? So later we can wrangle everybody. Well, we couldn't find him. We were trying to leave. And uh, so we're all looking for him. And uh, Sam walks into, this is at Sam's house. Sam walks into his bedroom, okay? And there in his bed is Macklin, all right? Under the covers, laid out on the pillow. I kid you not, hands behind his bed, lounging in Sam's bed, okay? On Sam's side of the bed, all right? And Sam looks at Macklin, and Macklin looks back at Sam, and this is what Macklin says to Sam. Sam's house, Sam's bed. I'm the daddy now. (laughs) (laughs) And if you know Mac, it's not too surprising. But nonetheless, right? I wish Sam would have been like, oh, you're the daddy now? Here's the mortgage. Here's my four kids. Yeah, you're the daddy now. All right, go be the daddy, right? But listen, as comical as that may be, that's what we say to God all the time, right? God, who is the creator, sustainer, owner of it all, right? We're in his house. We're in his bed. We're tucked under his sheets, right? We look at him and we go, no, 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 God. I'm the daddy now. No, 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 no. no. We're going to play by my rules. Yeah, I know it's your house. I know it's your mortgage. I know it's all, uh, everything you have, but I'm going to be in control. And God goes, okay, you, you see how that works out for you, right? Like we don't even know what we're asking for when we say that to God. But that is one of the ways that we dismiss God. We dismiss God by, 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 by dishonoring his presence, not being aware of his presence in all things. We, we dismiss God by neglecting one another. We, dis, we dismiss God by not obeying Hebrews and saying, hey, listen, don't neglect gathering together one another. Like you can't downplay the significance of gathering together, even here in Malachi, because what this remnant did was they got together and they spoke. They shared They cared for one another. They built one another up. But we are busy dismissing God and his power and instead exchanging it for our self-reliance. We dismiss God by by allowing appropriate sins within the church. By the way, that's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as appropriate sins. You see, but instead what Malachi is calling us and what the Lord is calling us to do is to get together as the church and cultivate this relationship. Look in to strengthen one another up, to speak truth to one another, to encourage, to build, not to gossip or slander, right? And here's what it says happens. Look at this. And so then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And this is amazing. You can't skip this. The Lord paid attention and heard them. God of the universe, paying attention and hearing his people getting together and talking, remembering, recounting, stirring one another up, going, listen, I I know it's hard. I know this might be your view. I know this might be the struggle. I know this might be what you're wrestling with, but I want to remind you. I want to encourage you. I, I I want to build you up. And God hears them. And God paid attention to them. And one of the ways I always start my prayers is just reminding myself in my heart, God, thank you for listening to me. Thank you for being a God who hears me when I pray. God, you, I give you so many reasons not to hear me. 
I give you so many reasons not to pay attention to me, but because of Christ, because you are my father, because verse two in chapter one, you love me, you hear me. He hears us when we pray. He hears us when we get together. And so not only do they remind each other um, of the things that God has done and who he is, but the people of God, when they get together and we look in, we also have to be reminded of our identity. Did you catch the identity verse here? It's in verse 17, right? The people of God, the church, what is our identity? I love the description here in verse 17. And they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, which is beautiful. In the day when I make up, here we go, my treasured possession, I will spare them. He's talking about the day of judgment. He goes, my people, here's what they are to me, my treasured possession. God of the universe, creator, sustainer of everything. What is his treasured, most treasured possession? His people. His people. The redeemed community, those who fear him and love him and walk with him. Some of you, all you need to hear this morning is that. Is that you are God's treasured possession. You're wondering, you're doubting, you're maybe looking out, going, oh, the circumstances, or you're looking at your life, going, these circumstances, God goes, no, you're my treasured possession. You're whom I love. You're, you're the one I sent my son to die for. That's how much I love you. That's how much I treasure you. The God who owns and has everything says what he treasures most is his people. Is his people, is you and me, his, his image bearers. And if we're honest, to some extent, because we're made in his image, we understand that our most treasured possessions in our lives are not our tangible things. Right? They're family or their friends or their spouse or their, their community. You see, in one day, what Malachi tells us, one day, all that looking out and all the dysfunction and all the brokenness and all the sin that we see that goes, God... It seems like the unrighteous are prospering while the righteous struggle. All of that will be made right. But in the meanwhile, don't forget, as we're looking in, if you will, here, don't forget God is still moving today. God is still moving in your heart and in your life in spite of the circumstances that may be on the surface. He is still alive and very well. But hear me, we don't look in to create a holy huddle. Right? We don't look in and just go, yeah, that's right. We just need to weather the cultural storm. No, God calls us to look in, to be reminded of who he is so that we might go where? Out. So if you will, I could say it like this. We turn in to faithfully and hopefully turn outward and not hopelessly. Right? If we don't turn in first and get our strength from the presence of God, we have no hope in turning out to a lost and watching world. Ever. And so we turn in so that we might faithfully turn out because God has called us to participate with him, join with him in advancing the gospel and seeing darkness push back. You say, but Kyle, it seems like we're losing, right? It seems pointless. It's what Israel is saying here, that there's no distinction any longer between the people of God and the rest of the world. Oh, yeah, 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 wait, wait, wait. We know the rest of the story, though. We know what Malachi lays out. We know the book of Revelation is true, that there is coming a day where God comes back and sets all things right. So we don't go out without a hope and an understanding of the future that is promised. So we don't go out hopeless or anxious, but we go out as a people full of peace. Oh man, do we? 
That's not something we need in our culture or in our day, I know, or our church. Calm? Definitely don't need that. That's not relevant. Hope? That's how we go out. Peacemakers. People with a non-anxious presence. People who are calm. Right? I love what that, and I've said it before, the pastor who shared that the prophetic edge of the church is calm. How can the church be calm in chaos? Because we know the end. Because we know our God is faithful to bring about his purposes and his plans exactly how he wants and will. And in the end, it's going to come perfectly. And so, so let me go quickly. So we look out, we look in, we look back. As people who fear God, we, we look back. Um, and you say, well, where did you get this? In chapter four, verse four, Malachi tells the God-fearers, right? The remnant. To remember the law. It's one of the only places I think in scripture that I've been able to find where it says, remember the law of my servant Moses and the statutes that he gave, the Ten Commandments on Mount Horeb. So it's, it's not just looking in, it's also looking back. Now here's the reality for us as a church today. Why do we look back? We look back because looking back, we see God's faithful hand to his people, right? And again, this is us being judgy Christians, right? Where we go, Israel, how could you have forgotten this God who delivered you from Egypt out of slavery and all those things, gave you the promise? Like, how could you have gotten? You want to know why? Because we're a sinful, forgetful people. That's how. That's why we need constant reminders, right? We need to constantly be called looking back, okay? But we don't look back to a man standing on a mountain, Moses, with tablets. As Christians, here's what we do. We look back, okay? We look back to a man who is pinned to a cross where our salvation is found. We look back to an empty tomb that shows the power of salvation is in that cross by an empty tomb. We look back to Acts chapter two, where the Holy Spirit comes and fills the people and the church is formed. We look back to those things where the church continued to move forward and the gates of hell did actually not prevail against it, even though it's tried time and time again. We look back, not to just gaze back and go, wow, isn't that awesome? Not just do that, but we look so that we're formed by it. Some of you are really good at gazing back and go, man, that's really good. That's really good. But you're not actually formed by what you look back and gaze to. God wants us to gaze back so that we're formed by the cross. We look at the cross and we go, listen, our savior is the one who died for us. Why would he call our followers or his followers to anything different? It's what it says. You got to die to yourself and take up your cross. We look to the empty tomb as the source of power to go, listen, everything that God says that he will accomplish, he will. Why? Because the tomb is empty. And then he takes it one step further and says, I'm going to place my spirit in you. And that power is not just going to be outside of you, but it's going to be in you to walk in boldness, to walk in mission, to walk in all those things in holiness and sanctification because my spirit is in you. I've put it there. So be formed by it. Be shaped by it. Don't just, don't just look back and, and be amazed only. Be shaped by it, church. And that's what Malachi is telling us to do in looking back. Because that's then how we look to the last look, forward. Right? Um, and this is what the end of Malachi does, is it looks forward. It looks forward to that ultimate day, what it calls that great and awesome day of judgment. Great and awesome together might sound all like uh, kind of roses and cupcakes. Those are two extreme words. Great, meaning for some, 
It's incredible, right? For us as believers, we, we look forward to that day. Awesome in that term is the idea there of fear. That there are some who look at the judgment or coming of Christ, that final day of judgment where he sets all things right, where they look at it with fear because their hearts aren't secure in him through Christ. And so they're wondering or they're in the balance or they, they know, hey, when that day finally comes, I'm gonna be on the other side of eternity. And so he says it's this great and awesome day of judgment saying that, listen, there will be a day where God brings his final restorative justice to all people. And the great peace, here's what I love in Malachi, and I want to encourage you with this as it ends. That that great day, look at verse two of chapter four. It says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with what? Healing in its wings. What do we need more than anything else on the planet? Do you know what we need? Healing. That's really, as believers, what we're calling for, what our heart aches for, even as we look out, right? Not not, not just physical healing, and some of you need physical healing, and you're seeking the Lord for physical healing, but more than anything, what do we need? We need our spirit, our souls healed. And God goes, listen, on that final day, spiritual healing will come, finally. Reconciliation, restoration for my people will come completely. We're in the, the middle of the already, but not yet right now. And he goes, there will be a day where it will all fully and finally be realized. And healing will come what your soul and my soul aches for. And then in verse six, he says that there will be this healing that comes. And he says that fathers will be restored to their children and their children to their fathers. Now, that's an interesting metaphor to end the book of Malachi on, right? Well, it isn't if you understand the heart of God, his father. If you understand what he's doing in his love toward you and toward me, he's restoring us and healing us at our core. That's at our core, right? Our relational need, our relational healing, right? The healing here between the heavenly father and us, his children, he restored and he healed in Christ. Now he's restoring the relational need here where there will be no more hurt and there will be no more pain. There will be no more angst and there will be no more struggle. How my heart longs for that day, amen? Where the broken and the twisted and the sad will all be reversed and we will have healing. You see, it's the end, church our confidence in the end that motivates our current. It gives us a vision for what our future hope is for those who fear the Lord, who love him, who serve him with our whole hearts. See, that's how Malachi ends. I know destruction is the word that's there, but it's actually really hope-filled. It's actually this vision, if we'll understand it and we'll hear it as the people of God that says, listen, we can be confident in a world that's deteriorating all around us, that we're, we're, we're wondering, God, where are you? What are you doing? He is moving. He is alive. He is active in your life, in our community. He is alive. Whether you see it or you don't see it, he is alive. Why? Because he says he is. And I trust his word. And so, listen, ending Malachi, any, any book really we preach to, the ending, like the ultimate ending of the book, is always the hardest for me. And it's like, how do, you, how do you sum up? Even, you know, we've only been here for five weeks or, you know, when we went through the book of Acts in two years. Um, how, how do you sum it up? Malachi on two fronts. Um, here's what I want to end this with. Malachi is a wake-up call for us. 
because that's the nature of the book. It's a wake-up call for you and me. It's a wake-up call for those of you who have grown just spiritually lethargic, right, over, maybe it's been over the last year, 18 months, maybe it's been over the last 18 years, I don't know. But God in his grace is calling you back to himself, to know him, to know his love, to know his grace, and to know his mercy in a real way. For some of you, he's confronting you very specifically in the things that he went through in Malachi, right? With your covenantal commitment, with your money, with your loves, with all of these other things. He's very specifically lasering in on you. But the last thing I think Malachi is teaching us is this, is he's giving us a vision for our lives. He's giving us a bigger vision than our small, finite imaginations have for living. He gives us one that says, listen, I want you to be focused on an eternity, on a future hope that is coming and very real because that's then going to dictate and control the course of our lives in the here and now. And so he gives us this beautiful picture of what life and life to the fullest look like, what flourishing really looks like, what it looks like is me surrendering my whole life, not just 92%, but my whole life to the one who deserves it and who the one who will lead it the best. That's what Malachi gives us. Let me pray for us. Father, God, I do thank you for the prophet Malachi. God, this book that you placed in the 66. God, this book that you inspired Malachi to write thousands of years ago that would serve the nation of Israel and would serve the Parks Church here in 2021. God, it is so incredible God, it is so incredible that those words ringing true back then ring true today. And so, Lord, I pray that we might, by the power of your spirit, yield to your word, hear your word, receive it with gladness as hard as it is so that we might live lives of complete joy. And God, I pray for us as a church. I pray that we might be that prophetic, calming voice the people who look out, not in despair, but look out and see what we've been called to as the people of God. People who are quick to look in and find encouragement in life, not strife and gossip. Lord, the world offers that. I pray that the church would be a different picture. God, I pray that we would be a people who look back and gaze upon you would gaze upon your son and his life and his death and his resurrection so that we might be formed by that. God, form us deeply, I pray, as a community. God, by the way of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. God, let us do what he did. Let us live as he lived. Let us carry the same heart and attitude he carried as his followers. And Lord, I pray that we would have eyes that look ahead to the glorious day that great day when all injustice is made right, when all brokenness is healed, where all sin and struggle and sickness is no more. And God, we do as your word says, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Father, heal us, heal this world for your glory. But until that day, Lord, I pray that you would give us in this church the faith to live as witnesses and ambassadors for your better and best kingdom. I love you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.